1 Kings chapter number 1. I'd like to read the first four verses and we'll pray. The Word of God says, Now King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. Some of you say, Amen. You know what that is. Wherefore his servant said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king a young virgin. Let her stand before the king. Let her cherish him. Let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord the king may get heat. So they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel, and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was very fair, and cherished the king, and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege it is to be in your house. And we ask, Father, that you would apply this word through the work of the Holy Spirit to our hearts and lives. Lord, we love you, and we just commit this time that we have together to you to glorify you and for you to do in us that which would bring glory to you. Lord, we love you, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you're only going to find this young lady mentioned a handful of times in Scripture. In fact, you find her mentioned here in chapter number 1. You go down a little further, and you'll find her mentioned in chapter number 2. And there ends the story of Abishag. But there's a truth here that I believe is important to us, and it is wrapped up in what is said about her and her job and her responsibility And I want you to read it again with me. Look at verse number 2, and we'll talk about it a little more extensive here in a moment. But the Bible says, Wherefore his servant said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord, the king, a young virgin. Let her stand before the king. Now notice this language. Isn't this beautiful? And let her cherish him. All through Scripture, you'll find that David is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That's not to say that every mistake he made reflected something about the Lord. That's not to say that uh, the mistakes that he made were in some way reflective of our Lord's ministry. Uh, But in Old Testament types, you won't find a more thorough and complete type just about than King David. The times when he was used as a type of Christ, especially considering uh, Christ's millennial throne, it's very vivid in the Word of God. David is now a very old man. We know that he's probably uh, nearing 70 years old. Uh, He died at 70 years old. He's nearing that period in his life uh, as an old man who's been battle-worn, who's spent many a weary night sleeping in a cave or out under the stars, uh, who no doubt has suffered uh, many injuries on the battlefield and spent a lot of time going hungry and without uh, proper shelter. Uh, That sort of lifestyle has uh, left its mark on King David. Uh, The kingdom is secure. David has fought long and hard for it, and the Lord has delivered it into his hand. Now, as an old man, the thing that he struggles with is just keeping heat in his body. Uh, In that time and in that part of the country, it was not uncommon for uh, doctors to prescribe just exactly what they prescribed here. Uh, They would take somebody like David, and they put bedclothes on him, tried to do everything they could to warm him up, but he got no heat. So the royal physicians came to him and said, This is our prescription. You need to find a young person, a young lady, and bring that young lady to the king. Allow that young lady to lie beside the king so that some of her warmth can be transferred to him. We know that there was nothing carnal about this relationship. In fact, the Bible is very explicit to say that. At the end of verse number 4, it says, But the king knew her not. Uh, But very likely, King David uh, either married or at least made a concubine out of this woman. 
and so she was brought into the royal fold. Her life was forever changed, but she was not there for herself. She was there for the pleasure and for the warmth and for the well-being of the king. Can I say to you tonight that I see in Abishag a picture of the greatest aspiration for the Christian life. Do you know that you're not here for you? You're here for Jesus Christ. You're not here for your good. You're not here for your glory. I know that the Lord does a lot of things for our good. And boy, I'm thankful He does. Every good gift, every perfect gift cometh down from above from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Boy, I'm thankful that the Lord's good to them that know Him, them that follow Him. But can I just serve notice on you tonight to say this, that though the Lord is good to you, though He provides for you, your well-being is His concern and not your concern. You're not here for your comfort. You're here for His glory and for His pleasure. And so let's say a few words tonight about this young woman. And I hope that you can see a picture somewhat in your life and what you and I ought to be for Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to notice first off her qualities. Now, we're not really told a lot about her. In fact, beyond her name, we know nothing about her other than that she fit the bill for what they were looking for. So we don't really know much about her, but we know what they were looking for, and we know that when they found her, they felt like they had found what they was looking for. And so we understand a few things from that truth. I want you to notice first off her name. Uh, now, you sort of have to be careful with Bible names because sometimes, uh, you know, the folks that write the dictionaries, they get a little fanciful. Uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated by her name because her name is, does not mean what you would expect it to mean. Usually, when you'd think about someone like this, in fact, the Bible says she was beautiful and she was a fair damsel, you would think for sure that her name would mean something along the lines of beautiful, something along the lines of desired, something along the lines of cherished. But when you know it, that her name actually means the very opposite. Literally, her name, Abishag, means... Now, listen to this. How'd you feel if you named this? It literally means mistake of the father. That was her name. When anybody called her by her name, it was a stinging reminder that she was not wanted in her own family. I don't know what kind of parents she had, but I can sort of guess by what they named her. And no doubt as she grew up, she bore the emotional scars that no doubt would come with a child being aware that they're not wanted in their own house, that they're viewed as a mistake, that they're viewed as something undesirable. Can I tell you something? Listen, I know we live in an extra-sensitive society, don't we? We live in an extra... I don't mean extra-sensitive. I mean extra-sensitive. That's how sensitive it is. But let me say this too. No child ought to grow up unloved and unwanted. No child ought to... It fascinates me that the same crowd... Uh, that is willing to fine you if you, uh, you know, destroy an ostrich egg because we don't want the animals to feel like they're unwanted is the very same crowd that doesn't mind murdering 45 million unborn children since the 1970s. And the same crowd that spends millions of dollars trying to straighten kids out and, and, and with therapy and counseling to show them how much they're wanted uh, treats them in the state school system like they're just another number, just another face in the crowd, spends the rest of their life telling them that your mama could have just aborted you because you weren't even alive until you came out of the womb. Now, something's wrong with that, isn't there? Something's wrong with that. Every child ought, ought to be loved and wanted. I know that's not the reality, and it wasn't the reality for Abishag. I want you to notice first off that she was proclaimed scorn in her household. No doubt that was a difficult thing. But you know that that's true of you and I as well. The Bible says this concerning those that know the Lord. The Bible says, Christ said this, that the world will hate you. It hated me first. I know I'm paraphrasing, but you stick with me. 
said, it hated me first, and so it's going to hate you. In fact, in hating you, it's not really you that they hate. It's me that they hate when they see me in you. And so as a Christian, understand that by our natural family, and that's what humanity is, isn't it? That's our natural family. You hear lots of folks talk about the human race and the human family. Can I say that the human race hadn't done so hot? They ain't done so good, have they? Oh, I know, we all got iPhones and iPads and everything else, and you can go microwave the pizza and have it done in five seconds. But you walk out onto the streets and blood is pouring. And you turn on the TV and people are, are, are burning things down just to watch them burn. The human society and the human race really ain't done all that well, I don't think. That is our family. That is our nature. There's no question. Can I say that as a believer, once you get born again, you won't run short on people that have a problem with you. You really live for the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't run short on people that have a problem with the way that you live. I do not know what it was about her that warranted this name. We assume it was no physical attributes because later on in life she's described as exceedingly fair. Very likely it really had nothing to do with anything she had done, but probably it had something to do with a choice that her father had made. You see, the reason she was hated wasn't necessarily what she had done, but what her father before her had done. And you know that all of the rage and all of the anger and all of the sin and all the wickedness, uh, I understand that we were still counted sinful and we are still sinful even though we've not sinned after the similitude of Adam. But there's also no question that began when uh, Adam ate of the fruit. It didn't begin when Eve ate of the fruit. It began when Adam ate of the fruit. Humanity was spiraled into depravity and things ain't never been the same since. Here she is, unwanted, undesired. Uh, probably she has left home. I know if, if my parents named me that, I'd leave them home. Amen. She probably has no family. She is in one of the most terrible situations a human being could be found in. And then the king calls for her. Oh, what a glorious day when the king called for her. That was the day when things changed, was when the king called for her. Everything changed now. And I want you to notice not only was she proclaimed scorned when her name is given, but I want you to notice she was prized by others. She may have been disdained by some, but she was desired by some others. And in verse number 3, when they looked all over the kingdom, who would have ever thought it would have been Abishag, the outcast of her own family, that would have been called to the king's table. You know, isn't that just how salvation is? The Lord can save anybody. I believe that. I believe He wants to save anybody. I don't believe He gets a little group of people and stamps the, the, the color elect on them and says, all right, now you're the crowd and everybody else in. I just call me simple, but I believe my Bible when it says, any that come unto me I will in no wise cast out. Now, I don't, that may be oversimplified. I know I don't have a bunch of degrees to go with that theology, but, but I think I'm reading my Bible right when I read that whosoever believe, whosoever believe. And so uh, I'm aware anybody can be saved. But as we look through the Word of God, you know what the Lord said? He says, not many wise are called. Not many wise. Uh, not many that are expected. But God hath chosen the small things, the insignificant things, the things that are not, to bring to naught the things that are. And what a beautiful truth it was the day that the king called her name and let her know that though she may be unwanted by her natural family, she was very wanted by the royal family. And so she was prized. But what was it about her that she was prized for? And I've got to be careful the line that I walk here because I don't want to misrepresent any sort of theology. Can, can I give you a good rule of studying your Bible? Never let type define theology or doctrine. You always let doctrine define type. 
If the type doesn't hold up under the doctrine, just ignore the type. Because doctrine is preeminent in the Word of God. It's preeminent. But I do find this to be true. She was proclaimed scorned by her family, and she was prized by the royal family and by the king. Look at verse number 4. The Bible says, uh, and uh, well, I got, I got looking, I got one place here and one place there, and then I got a Bible over there I'm not looking at, amen. Uh, look at verse number 4. And the damsel was very fair and cherished the king and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. We know that she was a virgin when she came to the king because that was the sort of girl that they was looking for. And by the way, that's the sort of girl that any respectable boy is looking for, Right? And uh, that's, that's not to say that God doesn't use people that have made mistakes, but uh, I think our young ladies need to hear that, don't you? That uh, the right kind of boy is going to want you the way that, that God wants them to have you. So we know that she was a virgin when she came to the king, but we find this to be true, that even afterwards she did not know the king. It would have been appropriate if uh, David married her uh, in that time and in that culture. There's no question. And yet we find that their relationship operated on a different level. We find that the only thing that David longed for was for her service and for her warmth. What a beautiful picture of the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for us. Uh, You know, I, I mean, listen, we ought to live our lives entirely for His glory. But isn't it good to know? And He wants glory. And He deserves glory. His name is exalted above all blessing and all praise. But isn't it good to know that He's got our well-being in mind? Isn't it good to know that, that the thoughts that He thinks towards us are good thoughts, thoughts of peace to an expected end? And so we find that she was pure. Let me say that purity is still one of the qualities God looks for in people to serve Him. It's not, it's not quality that God looks for in people to save, and I'm thankful of it because none of us are pure before the Lord. But for those that are going to serve Him, those that are going to stand in His presence and live for Him and do something for Him, God still looks for purity. You say, preacher, I've messed up. Well, that's okay. That's what the blood is for. You can get forgiveness. Uh, anybody that will tell you that you've made so many mistakes and mistakes God can't forgive you, they just need to hush their mouth. Because if they saw mistakes the way God sees mistakes, they'd see that their mistakes are probably just as big as your mistakes. You can make it right. You may have messed up. And listen, I'm not just talking about it in a physical sense. I mean any aspect of your Christian walk. There ain't a one of us that hadn't messed up, done things we shouldn't have done, said things we shouldn't have said, thought things we shouldn't have thought, acted in a way we shouldn't have acted. I'm thankful that the Lord forgives, aren't you? But I'm equally thankful that He expects us to come to Him for forgiveness and to live and to pursue a pure and a holy life. So we see her qualities. But I want you to notice her commission. I think in some ways you could kind of break down the Christian walk into these four things that were commanded for her. She wasn't given a lot to do. It took up all of her time, but it was not complicated. And look what it says in verse number 2. Wherefore his servant said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king, a young virgin, and let her... And you're going to notice four things here. Number one, let her stand before the king. You say, what does God want out of my life? Boy, we've got... I mean, we've really complicated things in the day that we live in. And uh, everybody's seeking the will of God. And I believe God has a will. I believe He does. Let me tell you something. You don't find the will of God if you're not doing the will of God. You say, well, how do I do the will of God? If I can't find the will of God, well, there's some, some aspects of the will of God that ain't hard to find. Like, for instance, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. 
uh, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It doesn't take a theologian to understand that it's the will of God that you be faithful to God's house, that you read your Bible, that you pray, that you be a witness, that you live for the Lord. You don't have to have no degree to figure that out. But I'll tell you this, lots of folks looking for the will of God aren't doing the will of God. If you're not doing the will of God, you won't find the will of God. And so it's very simple, very simple the things that God commands us. Though it's not easy to do because we have to battle our flesh, it is very simple. And of these four things, the first thing was to labor for the king. That's, that's what it means when it says to stand in His presence. You find this truth a little more vivid uh, later on uh, in the presence of uh, David uh, because Bathsheba comes in and the Bible says that the only person that was there was Abishad. She very likely became the personal servant of King David. You see, whatever he wanted, it was her job to provide. Now, uh, can, I, can I go a step further and say our king is even better than David was? Because anything that he expects out of us, he'll equip us to do. He'll equip us to do. But your, your job, the will of God for your life, and I, you don't hear me say this a lot because there's a lot of pastors that tell you things are the will of God when they don't know whether they're the will of God or not. But there's some things I can tell you are the will of God, and it's the will of God for you to serve God. doesn't mean everybody serves Him the same way, in the same capacity, or even to the same degree. Uh, you enter stages in your life, and no doubt David at this place in his life couldn't do what he used to do. You'd never hear the crashing of David's sword on the battlefield. You'd never hear the clanging of his shield against Philistine shields again. But you know what we find? David could make the right choices. Uh, here in just a little while, uh, Solomon uh, to ask Bathsheba to come in before him. And uh, Bathsheba goes in before David and says, You know, David, Adonijah is trying to pursue the throne, but you made a promise to Solomon that Solomon would sit on the throne with what power he had left, with what strength he could muster. Uh, David sat up in bed and coronated Solomon to be the king. You see, he couldn't do a lot, but he could make the right decisions. Everybody can do something for the Lord. Nobody can do everything for Him. And anybody that pretends they can do everything, they're lying to themselves and to others. But everybody can do something for the Lord. The problem is this. If we wait around uh, to, till we can do everything to do anything, we'll wind up doing nothing. You do what you know to do while you know to do it. You do what's the will of God, the revealed will of God. Leave the unrevealed will of God to God. When it's time, He'll reveal it. God's not playing head games with us. Amen? He doesn't stutter. He doesn't mumble. He doesn't whisper. When He wants His will known to you, He'll make it known to you. But He'll only make it known to those that are serving, that are living for Him. So we see that the first thing was to labor for the king. Notice the second thing. Uh, she's to stand before the king, but then the Bible says this, and let her cherish him. She was to labor for the king, but she was to love the king. Uh, it's interesting, that word that's used, cherish. Uh, not necessarily because there's some real deep Hebrew meaning that you got to, you know, buy a $40 concordance to understand, but mainly because the way that word is used all through the rest of the Word of God and also the way the ancients used that word. Uh, it was believed at that time that not only by the proximity of her being in the bed next to David, but also through him breathing her air, that that would somehow rejuvenate his body. I don't know whether that's true or not. Amen. I do my best to, to not breathe other people's air. Somebody say amen right there. But I do understand this, that when they said to cherish him, you know what they were saying? Give your very life breath for him. Love him, care for him. Give your very life's breath for him. Boy, what a beautiful picture there is of love. 
What a beautiful picture there of what true biblical love is. Let me tell you something. I'll say this to, to young people, and I guess to old people. I guess I'll say it to anybody to listen. It's usually how it is. If somebody can tell you they love you, but if all they do is take, they don't love you. They don't love you. They can say they love you, but if all they do is take, they don't love you. You see, the way she was to love the king was allowing her life's breath to be took to his body. She was to love him. She was to give her all for him. There's no question, both because of his stature, but also because of the charge given her, that if he had chosen for that relationship to be more than what it was, no doubt she would have complied. David didn't ask that of her. But what he did ask was this, that her very health and vigor be transferred unto him. Can I Listen carefully. You know, God doesn't ask for much from us. He just asks for our all. You know why people think that's a steep price? Because they think they're somebody. They think they're somebody. You see, the moment that you wake up and realize that you're, you're like Mephibosheth, you're nothing but a dead dog. There's a lot of folks who won't give you a plug nickel for a live dog, let alone a dead dog. And the day that you wake up and realize that you're not much will be the day that you don't have any trouble giving your everything to him. She wasn't much, very likely. She would have just lived. It's possible she would have turned maybe even to a life of, of sin and immorality to keep herself fed. But because the king got to her before the other crowd got to her, now she's in the palace. And all that he asks is that she give her all for him. Let me tell you something. If you don't, if you don't serve the Lord, at least in the way that you can, then, then don't act like you love the Lord. He said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. In other words, if the breath is a picture of life in the Word of God, and it is, by the way, uh, God breathed into man the breath of life, and breath in the Bible is a picture of life, then really what the Lord was asking was this, you let me have your life, and I'll give you my life. Oh, what a vivid picture of Calvary. You know how Paul said it? He said this, I am crucified with Christ. In other words, I took my life and I gave it to Him. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. God doesn't ask for much. And if you'd see that you're not much, it'd be a lot easier for you to give your life for Him. Notice, thirdly, not only was she commanded to stand before the king and to cherish the king, but the Bible says, and let her lie in thy bosom. Now, there's not some big, complicated, elaborate explanation for that. What it means is he laid in a place and she laid next to him. But you know what she was called to do? She was called to stay in close proximity. You know that it is not just a suggestion for you to stay close to the Lord. It's a command. It's a command. It's a requirement to live for Christ. You know what he said? He said, without me, you can do nothing. He said, if a man doesn't abide in me, he won't bear fruit. He won't bring forth fruit. He's fit for nothing but to be cut down, hewn down, and burned. That's all he's fit for. But if you'll abide in me, he said, you'll bring forth much fruit. Sounds to me like the real key to living for the Lord is staying close to Him. Staying close to Him. There's always trouble when people started following afar off. That's when Peter got into his problems, you remember. The Bible says that he followed afar off. It didn't take long until the glowing embers of a betrayal fire caught his attention, and there he was warming his hands in comfort rather than standing by the Lord's side. 
You see, you stay close to them and that will fix a lot of it. Problems always come when we quit reading our Bible and when we quit praying. Always happens. If you want to know how, how to be in a mess by this time next week, just don't pick up your Bible all week. Don't bow your head and pray. Don't talk to the Lord. Don't commune with Him. Avoid the Lord's house and you'll be in a mess. I promise you it won't take you seven days to be in a mess. You may not be laying in a hospital bed, but you'll, if you're saved by the grace of God, you'll be unhappy. You'll be miserable. We got a lot of Christians. I said this in Sunday school this morning. We got a lot of Christians that get by by just wearing a mask. And there, there, I mean, there ain't a lick of genuineness whatsoever to their Christian walk. They've just learned how to sing the tunes and, and, and they've learned how to say the words. And they're as hollow and as shallow as they come. You won't live long like that. You're not built to live like that. I'm not built to live like that. The human heart craves genuineness and authenticity. You live like that. It won't be long before you give up and get out. But what do you think happened to Demas? Demas hath forsaken us, having loved this present world. And you know what John said about people like that? John said they went out from among us because they weren't of us. I'm not implying everybody that leaves church isn't of us. You know that. But I will say this. Some folks that just leave church altogether, that is the reason. And it don't take long before their life is a mess. You see, they gave her just a few commands and one of them was to live next or to lie next to the king. Notice number four, and this isn't explicit in the text, but I want to use it as a segue to my last point. Is that okay? Uh, preacher's not supposed to tell you what he's doing, but I'm going to. Amen. Uh, I want you to notice not only was she called to labor for the king and to love the king and to lie next to the king, but she was called to live for the king. Or could I say this, to be loyal to the king. Something very interesting happens in chapter 2. Turn over there with me. And I want us to read this short narrative. It's just about 10, 12 verses, and, and we'll make a few points here. But this is the last time that Abishag is mentioned. Now, some very interesting things have been happening. There's a man by the name of Adonijah. Adonijah is the fourth son of David. He has survived throughout uh, the years of battle, throughout the assault of Absalom. Uh, in fact, he was a, 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 one of the full brothers to Absalom, and he's survived. And Adonijah was a pretty good candidate for the throne. And actually, when uh, David was up in years and he was older, Adonijah began gathering people, as was often done in that time, gathering confederates around him and gaining and, and uh, currying favor and support with those that were influential in the kingdom. That was what precipitated the question uh, and the approach that Bathsheba made unto King David. Solomon came to, uh, to Bathsheba and said, I want you to talk to David because he's promised me the throne. He loves you and he'll listen to you. So Bathsheba goes into the presence of Abishag and King David and makes this request, says, you promised the kingdom to Solomon. But Adonijah is going around saying the crown is going to be his. So David rises up out of his sick bed. He, uh, he anoints or coronates uh, Solomon to be the king. And uh, David dies shortly after this. The Bible says in verse number 12 of chapter 2, Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. And Adonijah the son of Haggith came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. So now Adonijah is coming to Bathsheba after Solomon is upon the throne. He said, Moreover, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And she said, Say on. And he said, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me that I should reign. 
Howbeit the kingdom is turned about and is become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I ask one petition of thee, deny me not. And she said unto him, Say on. And he said, Speak, I pray thee, unto Solomon the king, for he will not say, say thee nay, that he give me Abishag the Shunammite to wife. You understand what's just happened. Adonijah said, I'd like Abishag to be my wife. And Bathsheba said, Well, I will speak for thee unto the king. Bathsheba therefore went unto King Solomon to speak unto him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed himself unto her and sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother. And she sat on his right hand. Then she said, I desire one small petition of thee. I pray thee, say me not nay. And the king said unto her, Ask on, my mother, for I will not say thee nay. And she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah thy brother to wife. Now Solomon doesn't respond how Bathsheba's hoping. And king Solomon answered and said unto his mother, And why dost thou ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also. For he is mine elder brother, even for him and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab, the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me. More also, if Adonijah have not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord liveth, which hath established me, and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who hath made me in house, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death this day. And King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him that he died. Now, what's just taken place in the few verses that we've read? Sometimes, have you, ever, have you ever read a portion of the Bible and just thought to yourself, well, that escalated quickly, you know? Wasn't expecting that to happen. And so, Bathsheba goes into Solomon and says, Adonijah wants Abishag, the Shunammite, to be his wife. I don't see a problem with it. Solomon, in, I believe, a tender way, but also in a sharp way, says to her, why don't you just ask for the kingdom itself? And while you're at it, ask for Abiathar to be the high priest and ask for Joab, the son of Zeruiah. You have to know a little bit of the background of the politics here, but understand this truth that Abiathar the priest and Joab, uh, David's general, had no desire for Solomon to be on the throne. They were supporters of Adonijah. You have to understand with this culture... That once something belonged to a king, it was to always belong to a king. I found something interesting as I read through Second uh, Samuel. I don't, I probably, I don't know if I'll be able to find it. Uh, but in Second Kings chapter twenty-four and verse number twenty-three, when uh, when David buys the threshing floor of Aruna, it says this: All these things did Aruna as a king give unto the king. You see, in Eastern culture at that time, Middle Eastern culture, it didn't matter what it was. Once it belonged to a king, it was to always belong to a king. When Adonijah comes, and I want you to notice, and that's what I mean by loyalty. You see, once she belonged to King David, she always belonged to King David. After a king uh, left the throne... Typically, wives and concubines would either be taken as the wives of the successor to the throne. You remember whenever Absalom ran David from the kingdom, that he set a tent up on top of the palace and went in under the concubines in the face of all of the children of Israel. That was his way of showing that he considered himself king. 
But most of the time, especially in the case of a son ascending the throne, it was out of uh, accordance with Levitical law for Solomon to have took Abishag to be her wi- his wife. And so what usually happened was they were to live out the rest of their life a ward of the palace and in widowhood. You see, once she belonged to King David, she would always belong to King David. Let me say this, and I, I don't know if you're with me or not. I mean, it's, I know, it's rainy, you're sleepy, I get it. But you see, once you belong to Him, you always belong to Him. You're His. Bought and paid for, my friend. You're His. And one of the things that God calls you to do is to be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we see her qualities in her commission But I want you to notice her caller. Someone came by one day wanting the hand of Abishag. We know his name is Adonijah. Wonder what Adonijah means. Well, if you're any kind of Hebrew scholar, and I doubt you are, I know I'm not. But I do know this, that the term Adonai is the term master. And I do know that the little suffix uh, judge, A-A-H, in the Word of God, is reflective of Jehovah and the use of Jehovah, Yahweh, in a person's name. And actually, the name Adonijah literally means this, Master of Jehovah. What an interesting name for an Israelite to have. But you see, it betrayed his very desire and his design. Notice, first off, this desire that he had. He said, I want Abishag to be my wife. Can I say to you that after you're born again, even before you're born again, There's always a battle for your heart and mind. There's one, there's a pretender to the throne, and he wants your heart, and he wants your mind. You see, Satan would love nothing more than to get his influence in your life and to wreck it and ruin it. No doubt that was probably appealing to Abishag. It's either a life of widowhood or having the son of a king for a husband. Satan always makes things appealing. He wouldn't do very well if he showed sin for what it really is, so he doesn't. And he always makes it seem like he's really going to treat you well. Uh, I, I preached on it. I won't spend time preaching on it again, but, you know, you think about trophies of grace. I know you've probably heard preachers preach on that, but, you know, you find in the Old Testament temple furniture and, uh, and utensils, you find a picture of a trophy of sin. When uh, people would go in, when armies, foreign armies would go in and conquer a, a, a people, they would always take the gods and the utensils from their temple, and they were taken as prizes. It's interesting to follow the history of the utensils in the temple, because in some ways they reflect you and I as choice people of God. And you find that when Nebuchadnezzar went in and destroyed Solomon's temple, he took all of the utensils... The Bible says he put him in the treasure house of his God, the Tower of Baal, towered hundreds of feet there in the city of Babylon. You know, that's how sin always is at the first. Sin always seems to exalt at first. That's why God's people have always struggled with it. You find that in Psalms chapter 73. Asaph is struggling with that truth that God's, that, that the wicked are, are increasing and prospering and God's people are persecuted. Sin always seems to elevate. But you get down to chapter number 5 of the book of Daniel, and they take them out of the treasure house of Baal and down into the what was essentially the, the ballroom sewers of that city where they would hold those massive 
banquets. And they take them and fill them full of liquor and toast the gods of wood and stone and silver and gold. See, sin always seems real glamorous at first. But pretty soon, Satan will use, abuse, and throw you to the side when he's done with you. We see his desire, but notice number two, his design. What was it that he wanted? This sort of explains what Solomon's response was. Bathsheba didn't understand what the big deal was. She said, well, Abishag is living in widowhood. David did not know her, so it would be okay for her to be the uh, wife of, of Adonijah. I don't see the problem with it. But Solomon understood this, that Adonijah didn't care anything about Abishag. He had his own agenda. You know why he said, why don't you give him the kingdom also? Uh, Adonijah already had a pretty valid claim to the throne in being the elder brother. In being the older brother, and not only that, but also having the support of Joab. The influence of Joab at this time in Israel cannot be underestimated. I mean, Joab had the, if he had wanted to, he could have probably been king at certain points in this history. And so, with all that support, he understands that Adonijah's affection for Abishag is nothing more than a ploy to take the throne from the rightful king. You know why Satan is so interested in you? Not because he cares about you. He's just interested in dethroning Christ. He's not interested in you. He doesn't care about you. He's just interested in trying to hurt the cause of Christ. And as soon as you no longer fit the bill with him, he'll throw you to the side. Solomon says, you might as well ask for the kingdom. Let me tell you something. When you live for Satan, and when you allow sin in your life, that's exactly what you're doing. You're giving him the kingdom. You understand that the culmination of the redemptive plan of God is fulfilled in every child of God. Those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. You may not think much of you, but Christ loved you enough to die for you. And to then take that, Cast it before swine. Oh my, what treason to the kingdom of God. We see his design, and then notice finally, and I'm done, notice his demise. Well, what if Abishag had married Adonijah? Would things have ended happily ever after? Well, look at verse 25. And King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him that he died. You see, Adonijah's life was short-lived. Abishag could have cast in her lot with him, and it would have been a very short lot because his days were numbered. Let me tell you something. If you've been saved by the grace of God, then your life is precious in the eyes of God. Your heart and your life and the way you live, your family and your loved ones, they're precious in the eyes of God. You cast them to Satan, you're casting in lots with somebody whose days are numbered. You live for the temporal. The Bible says that the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So here's the question. Who do you want to cast your lot in with?